Originally, we looked at that as uh, characterizing the mitochondrial population in terms of its heterogeneity, but then it evolved into looking at the social life of mitochondria within the cell when we understood that they go through continuous fusion and fission event, and there are consequences to those, and we can characterize each mitochondrion for its own kind of behavioral patterns. The subprime mortgage crisis is turning into the global Great Recession. A Jamaican sprinter named Usain Bolt sweeps the gold at his first Olympic Games in Beijing. And theoretical quantum chemist Angela Merkel is in her first term as German Chancellor. We are, you may have guessed, in 2008. It's the year that Roger Chen, Osamu Shimomura and Martin Schalfi win the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for the discovery and development of the green fluorescent protein, GFP. As it happens, GFP is an integral part of our episode, a look at the story behind a seminal paper published in the EMBO Journal in 2008, a paper entitled Fission and Selective Fusion Govern Mitochondrial Segregation and Elimination by Autophagy. The paper's lead author, Dr. Orion Shirihai, is now a professor at UCLA's David Geffen School of Medicine, but in 2008, his group was at Tufts University in Boston, where he, Postdoc Gilad Twig and their collaborators were following up on intriguing observations they'd first made at the Marine Biological Laboratory at Woods Hole. Welcome to the EMBO Podcast. We were asking the question, are mitochondria going through a process of uh, fusion and fission in a random or any organized way? And what are the consequences of this mitochondrial fusion and fission event? The conclusion of the paper was that mitochondria are going through continuous cycles of fusion and fission, and that the fusion uh, event are selective and are preferable for mitochondria that show higher memory potential and are reduced memory potential. And because those are going through continuous cycles, it creates some sort of a funnel uh, where mitochondria constantly uh, shed out a small portion, which are the daughter mitochondria that are depolarized, and those are joining what we call the preautophagic pool that is lasting about five hours until they are being removed by mitophagy if they do not recover their memory potential. And one of the, the key conclusions is that fusion is a selective event and that fission is essential for removing uh, my daughter mitochondria that then will be removed by mitophagy. An intracellular drama of mitochondria being subjected to a dynamic quality control mechanism that selects some organelles for fusion while shuttling others to their death by digestion. But was the mitochondrial life cycle what first author Gilad Twig, Orion Shihai, and their colleagues had set out to investigate? When the project started, this was uh, when Gilad Twig was in my lab. He came, he was a postdoctoral fellow uh, in my lab. And uh, we were collaborating at the time with Barbara Corky, still my, my dear collaborator, who is uh, an expert in uh, diabetes and the beta cell. And we were asking uh, uh, an interesting question that came from observation of beta cell. So the beta cell is responding to nutrient by insulin secretion, and it is the mitochondria that are actually the nutrient sensor, then the signal uh, generator for insulin secretion. And how do they do that? 
Mitochondria take the nutrients, they use the energy coming from the nutrients to charge the mitochondria and to induce a, a hyperpolarization of the mitochondrial membrane potential. We looked at that under the microscope and what we saw, we saw heterogeneity. We saw some mitochondria that are more polarized and some that are depolarized. Another question was, which of these mitochondria are actually participating in this process of signal generation for insulin secretion? Are we talking about a subpopulation? Or not. And so when you see something heterogeneous in a, in a picture, then the question is, is this heterogeneous because you have different population uh, of mitochondria that are some uh, hyperpolarized, some depolarized, and maybe the process of signaling is recruiting the depolarized to be more polarized? Or is it that every mitochondrion just constantly flicker between high and low mineral potential. And in a snapshot, it just looked like heterogeneity. So we needed to solve the question of what is the uh, role of different mitochondria in the process of um, insulin secretion. So I was going around with this task to find whether we're talking about mitochondria that are being, each of them, unstable in mineral potential versus different population of mitochondria. And the only way to decipher this was to label one mitochondrion and determine if this mitochondrion is stably different than another mitochondrion, or this mitochondrion is just flickering its, its memory potential constantly. And for a year, I was, I was searching for technologies to label one mitochondrion. And then one day, I'm walking around, I'm on my way for my lunch in, in Woods Hall, and I meet a friend of mine. He said, oh, there was an interesting talk here uh, by a woman named uh, Lippincott Schwartz. And she was talking about a GFP form called photoactivatable GFP that if you are zapping it with a laser, you can convert it from non-fluorescent to a fluorescent GFP. And I jumped. I, this is it. This is exactly what I need. I'm going to send it into target it into the, into the matrix of the mitochondria, and now I can follow one individual mitochondria and ask this question. So I contacted Jennifer Lippigon-Schwartz. I got this uh, photoactivatable GFP from her. At that time, we were already studying targeting of proteins to mitochondria. So this was, for me, an obvious task to send this photoactivatable GFP into the matrix of the mitochondria. And that's where it all started. So uh, Gilad Twig and I sitting in the microscope room, we are using the laser to zap one mitochondrion in a confocal microscope there in Woods Hole. And it shines up like explosion of fluorescence coming out of this one mitochondrion. We are all very happy. And that was, that was absolutely one very, very happy day. And then it came with some some concern, we, we started seeing that we are zapping one mitochondrion and following it, but then we see the fluorescence in another mitochondrion a minute later, and we said something is wrong with the laser. It's uh, why do we see the signal moving from one mitochondrion and now we see it in another? So the laser was not accurate and we were very concerned about it and disappointed. And then we, we, we started uh, looking uh, further how we can correct this artifact by uh, observing it for uh, uh, so many sessions of uh, imaging, we've actually seen diffusion event happening in real time where two mitochondria come to each other and they pass the signal, the fluorescence signal from one mitochondrion to the other. And we say, oh, we're seeing a fusion event. That's not an artifact. 
And that's where we said, okay, so now these fusion events are, are destroying our effort to determine if one mitochondrion has a memory potential is stable or not. But so then the question was, okay, for how long can we find a period of time when they don't go through a fusion event? And then we started tracking it. And that's where we started observing um, the cycle of fusion and fission. So when we did this study, we did it with the LSM 510, which today my students would say this is a microscope made of stone because they are using the LSM 880 uh, and, and better than that, they are also using additional technologies that are on this microscope that were not available before, uh, such as the super resolution or the AERISCAN technology and then the accelerated AERISCAN technology. So now they can generate uh, whatever it took me one day, they would generate in, in about uh, uh, 30 minutes or so. And it will be looking better. It will be more accurate because of the higher resolution. And that would be a game changer. The other hurdle that we had to suffer at that time is that uh, delivering the photoactivatable GFP2 cells was, was difficult because uh, transfection and transduction technology was just in the beginning. And the number of cells that we actually got to express the photoactivatable GFP was very small. And in many times we didn't get any cells. So I, I would sign up for the microscope, uh, which was a core facility microscope used by the entire institution. And so I would get my little slot to do this kind of uh, study. And then there is no cells that are expressing. And that's everything took way, way longer and more frustrating. But maybe that's why it gave us more time to think about what we're doing. Observational does not mean anecdotal. At the heart of the Shirihai Group's study was the systematic organization and critical review of a very large amount of imaging data. This is how I learned to do that, and I learned it actually from my mentor, Danny Dagan, in the Technion. And I can tell you what, uh, what happened. So this is during my PhD. We were doing patch clamp and we were studying um, hematopoietic cells, uh, ion channels. And we've seen a lot of a lot of interesting observation. And at some point, Danny and I uh, said, okay, what? We, we had an interesting question in the beginning, but we have observed so many other things. Let's do this practice. Let's print all of the recordings that we have done from different cells. And at that time, there was no, we didn't have like big screens, a computer, etc. We just printed everything. And we laid it out on the floor in the lab. So we covered the entire floor of the lab with, with prints of graphs of electrophysiological recordings. So it was all over. It was in the corridor and in the room and everywhere. And I started walking around and looking at all of them. And I started taking notes of what do I actually see here without the premeditated question that I had before. And after I, I took the notes, so here is observation number one, observation number two, observation number three. And then I went back and I said, how many times I saw each observation, which of the observations are actually common, and then how can I quantify them and then show that they are indeed common. And that's what exactly we did here. And this is something that I encourage every person that does imaging to be observable, to be uh, observing what do you actually see in those uh, movies and with an open mind and take notes. I've seen this interesting phenomenon. And then we created tables of phenomenon and when did we see them and how 
what is the quality of the imaging during which we have seen it. So we could actually give power to those observations done in good quality, technical quality, and reduce the power of those observations we have seen in low imaging quality. And then when you look at all of that, you start seeing the patterns of behavior of mitochondria that, uh, that are repeatable and that are occurring in those imaging sessions that are graded at high quality. And then you go back and you say, okay, can I now separate uh, from what I imagine or what I see or what I hope to see or the fairy tale that I have in my mind and actually separate it from that into quantifiable analysis can, that can pass uh, statistical analysis. So we, we were quantifying this observation that mitochondrial fusion trigger mitochondrial fission. How we did that? First of all, we observed it and we said, it looks like it always, the fission comes after the fusion event and they are very closely linked together. Now, how can we demonstrate it mathematically that this is the case? We set the time to fusion is, is zero. And now the question is, at what time fission happened? And then we draw a graph of cumulative probability of the fission after the fusion event. And if this was completely random, this would be the, the cumulative probability um, would be more, more linear with time. But this was actually the cumulative probability was going in an exponential way. And that was telling us that fusion trigger fission. And then I'm going to a conference. This was in Moscow. This was the EBEC in Moscow. And uh, Richard Yule is introducing me to Yuri Hynotsky from Philadelphia, who is the head of the MitoCare today. And I'm telling Yuri Hynotsky about the, that we are following mitochondria by photoconverting one mitochondrion and looking at fusion fission event. And what we see is that fusion trigger fission. And then uh, uh, Yuri tells me, yes, I'm also, uh, I also develop a way to uh, label individual mitochondrion and then following it uh, uh, with time. And I, I also analyzed it. And he opened his laptop and I opened my laptop and we see that we have generated exactly the same graph and our, the results, the, the actual numerical values of our graphs are superimposable. And this is a, a team that was actually not interacting with us. I never knew, I never met Yuri Ainotsky before. He did it on another microscope in another cell type with another, another approach. He, he came up with the same idea to do this mathematical analysis. And we came up with exactly the same graph. And that was telling us this is strong. In the paper, the events of the mitochondrial life cycle are not just sequential, they're postulated to be interdependent. Twig et al. proposed that fission would be a requirement for mitophagy. How did they test this hypothesis? The key was how can we actually inhibit uh, mitochondrial fission? And there were, there were a, a number of different uh, molecular possibilities. One was to knock down uh, DRP1 or to use the DRP1 dominant negative. The, the reason we, we prefer the DRP1 dominant negative is because it uh, had a stronger uh, and quicker effect on mitochondrial uh, fission. And we, we didn't want to uh, wait for too long for mitochondrial uh, fission inhibition. And the reason for that is that we saw that inhibiting mitochondrial fission uh, compromised mitochondria over time. 
and because of quality control. And today there are, there are other um, reasons we would think that my, inhibiting mitochondrial fission is for a long period of time is not a good intervention to do if you want uh, the specific answer of what is the role of mitochondrial fission in the context of uh, mitophagy. So we went with the DRP1 uh, dominant negative. We also used for the, the phase one uh, knockdown. At that time, we, we, this was a pre-controversy over what is the role of phase one. So phase one went through uh, ups and downs in the scientific community of what is actually its role. And there was a lot of debate. Uh, originally, it was, okay, this is the fission molecule and it came from yeast. Yeah, because this is a key fission molecule that is recruiting DRP1. It's like the receptor of DRP1 on the mitochondrial membrane. But then it was actually shown that uh, in mammalian system, those are other proteins, including MFF, for example, that are recruiting DRP1. And FIS1 was slowly getting a, a new assignment, a new function in the mammalian system, moving towards a role in mitophagy and fission events that are related to mitophagy. And this is very recent in the, in the past uh, two years. Reading the literature on mitochondrial fusion around the time of Orion's publication, I got the impression of a harmonious, fraternal process, organelles trying to help each other through a tough time. Now it seemed more ruthless, like a stripping for parts, the last stop before the chop shop. My PhD mentor always said, you get the best idea when you go to nature. Go out to nature, that's where you're going to get the best ideas for your research. That's why he always said that. And I, I, I joined my brother who is a bird researcher for a trip to Africa, to the savannah, to the Serengeti and to Ngorongoro and other places like that. And I love nature. This is what I learned from my father. He's a, he was a zoologist, biologist. And I, I was observing the nature for, for about uh, two to three weeks with my brother. And what you see in nature, in the Serengeti, where all the system, the ecosystem are actually preserved, is that the main rule of life, main rule of nature is selection. Selection and more selection. And helping each other that's not part of nature. It's part of humanity, but it's not part of nature. In nature, there is constant mechanisms to select and to remove whatever doesn't uh, work, not to help whatever doesn't work survive. And that trip happened exactly at that time when we were asking this question. And I came back from that trip and I said, this idea of helping each other, mitochondria helping each other, to, so those that are lingering will still survive, that doesn't look right. We are talking, let's look at, at inside the cell in the eyes of Darwin. Let's do subcellular Darwinism. And let's talk about selection. And then the, the point was, there is mitophagy. So you, think, you can think about mitophagy as the lion, the lion in the cell. This is, comes with a big stomach and it eats those mitochondria that, are, have, that have to be removed. But like in the savannah, the lion is not the one that determines the quality of the, of the herd. It is actually the herd that determines the quality of the herd by the females selecting which male they're going to go with, or the male fighting each other and allowing one to be the, the breeder versus not. So it is the herd itself that decides the quality, and then the lion is just taking what is left. So what, what lingers behind? 
And that's exactly what we were thinking in the context of the mitochondria. And, and this is the answer that we got when we did mathematical modeling of mitochondrial fusion, fission, and mitophagy. And where we could see that the main property that decides on the quality of mitochondria is the selectivity of fusion. And then that parameter, the, the threshold for the selectivity of fusion, is a more stringent parameter than then the parameter that decides whether mitophagy or not. And for that reason, you have heterogeneity in the cell where you have some depolarized mitochondria that are not going through fusion, but they have not gone through mitophagy yet. So you have two thresholds. One threshold is for fusion, second threshold is for mitophagy. At this point, we had no choice but to risk violating previous EMBO podcast guest Odedre Havi's copyright to ask Orion, what is the physiological relevance? Can we see any evidence that uh, inhibition of this mitophagy is functionally affecting mitochondria, not just accumulation of oxidized protein, but also function? And that's where we have used uh, respiration to, to ask this kind of question. If we are inhibiting mitochondrial fission, do we see any impact on mitochondrial respiration? And this is indeed what we've seen. We've looked at the uh, maximal respiratory capacity and we've seen that inhibition of autophagy or mitochondrial fission, each one of them uh, would inhibit maximal respiratory uh, capacity. In fact, that was uh, one of the first papers that was using the seahorse technology at the time. That was the, maybe a seahorse ma made of stone. The life cycle of mitochondria and the life cycle of mitochondria as mitochondrial fusion fission constantly happening, um, that has been observed by many groups in a variety of uh, tissues. It has also been observed that this cycle is, is arrested in pathologies. And specifically for me, interesting is the, is the context of, uh, of nutrients and how change in uh, nutrition and nutrient exposure, energy supplies and demand is affecting this uh, life cycle of mitochondria. The role of mitophagy in quality control has been studied by a large number of, uh, of labs in the connection of fusion and fission to quality control has also been substantiated where it has been observed, for example, by Leo Palak, that um, if you cannot do the fusion event, then fragmenting mitochondria can actually help uh, removal of uh, dysfunctional mitochondria where selective, if, if you affect the selective, uh, selectivity of fusion, this may be causing pathology. Dr. Constanze Winkelhofer is the chair of the Department of Molecular Cell Biology at Ruhr University in Bochum, Germany. Her interest in mitochondrial biology stemmed not from diabetes, but from her lab's focus on neurodegenerative diseases. Neurons are really quite special in terms of their polarity. You know, they depend on the efficient transport of mitochondria on their dynamics. And uh, in addition, they are highly active, so they need a lot of energy. And um, I think these features can explain why neurons are particularly vulnerable to a dysfunction of mitochondrial dynamics and also other mitochondrial deficits. When uh, the first Parkinson's disease-associated 
genes were identified, such as synuclein, parikin, and PINK1. And since PINK1 is a mitochondrial kinase, and the loss of PINK1 function clearly results in Parkinson's disease, so we were quite interested whether mitochondria are implicated in the function of these genes. And I mean, there were long-standing um, effects of mitochondria known that are related to Parkinson's disease starting in the early 70s of the last century, where uh, mitochondrial were a toxin that was a contaminant of a street drug caused Parkinson's disease in young drug addicts in California. And uh, so it was then identified that this drug preparation was contaminated with substance that specifically is taken up into dopaminergic neurons of the substantia nigra and there causes um, a defect to complex one. So we know for quite a while that uh, a specific inhibition of complex one of the mitochondrial transport chain can cause Parkinsonian symptoms. So this was the early link between Parkinson's disease and mitochondria and uh, with the discovery of the Parkinson's disease associated genes, there was even more evidence. And so our early work showed that several Parkinson's disease associated genes can influence a mitochondrial morphology and dynamics and uh, that there are also some genetic interactions. When Orion's paper came out in January 2008, so we discussed this paper in our journal club. And at that time, as I already mentioned, we were interested in direct or indirect effects of Parkinson's disease-associated genes on mitochondria. And this paper was a stimulus for us to attend the 2009 Keystone meeting on mitochondrial dynamics in Whistler. And I went there with my student and we were extremely excited to meet all the protagonists of the mitochondrial dynamics field. And it was very inspiring for our future work because this was not only a mitochondria expert meeting, it was really extremely interdisciplinary. And this is what I consider as extremely fruitful and uh, often gives rise to very innovative uh, findings. So um, since there is this link between mitochondrial dynamics to so many other not only mitochondrial processes, but cellular processes in general, I think um, this was a very influential and fruitful kickoff for the whole mitochondrial field. And not only for those researchers, they were only interested in mitochondrial biology, but also for so many translational aspects. So um, heart diseases, neurodegeneration, muscle diseases. So it, it was really very well appreciated that mitochondrial dynamics, this life cycle, mitochondrial uh, quality control is important for so many processes in health and disease. Mitochondrial dynamics and the mitochondrial life cycle are certainly relevant to several pathologies and 
play also a role in the aging process. So there are various monogenetic diseases caused by loss of function, mutations, infusion, or fission genes. And for neurodegenerative diseases, I mean, we now know that several aspects of mitochondrial biology can be influenced in a direct or indirect uh, manner. And I think uh, the pink Parkin-dependent mitophagy pathway linked to Parkinson's disease is an excellent example for the role of these genes in regulating uh, mitochondrial quality control under certain conditions. With aging, so many processes are dysregulated. And I think it is quite challenging here to define causal versus correlative effects. So I personally think that it is rather the mitochondrial network plasticity that matters in aging and also in some pathological conditions and this loss of plasticity combined also with a decline in adaptive um, mitochondrial functions um, is underlying a lot of different diseases. And I think this complex interplay between different pathological mechanisms makes it so difficult to address these deficiencies uh, with therapeutic strategies, because it's not only that fusion is good, fusion is bad. I think it's the balance and the context-specific regulation of these processes. The street drug story Dr. Winkelhofer referred to were contaminated batches of a home-cooked, highly potent Demerol analog, apparently initially concocted by a chemistry grad student. An investigation into the plight of four young people in California with symptoms of advanced Parkinson's disease eventually led to the culprit, MPTP. The compound has since been incorporated into model systems for Parkinson's research. If you're curious about the case, Langston et al. published its conclusion in Science 1983. My experience publishing this paper was very educational for me. This was one of the first papers that I worked with the editor and I learned a lot from the editor how to make the paper more perceivable for the reader, how to sharpen the message of the paper, how to selectively and appropriately address the comments of the referees. And why is that? So this paper was coming up with a new concept. It was to, to some of the referees and probably some of the readers, it was saying something that they thought is not likely to happen or that it's against the way they were thinking before. And therefore, they were very resentful to that, which today I know whenever the referees are resentful and it's harder to publish, it's because it's a novel, it's creative, and it's more interesting and important paper. Papers that are not novel enough or not a change in concept are much easier to publish. So here, there was a challenge for me and for the editor. On one hand, on the challenge for me is to make it stronger, substantiate the data and test everything in more than one way, address any potential technical problem, make every observation or analyze numerically quantifiable 
And so it's more objective and subject every observation, every imaging and every Western blot to statistical analysis. That's my challenge. The challenge of the editor is to say, I'm going to help Orion and his team come up with a new concept. And because it's going to be published in a journal like Ambo, that can, that can be shifting uh, the view in the field. So it's a huge responsibility on the side of the editor to say, I'm going to help Orion change the field. Or, or to change the way people are thinking in this field. So we have to work together. I have to work with the editor and the editor is gonna ask me to add more and more data, make it more substantial. The editor have to stay with me and not just uh, reject it because it's not uh, so easy with the reviewer. And the nice thing uh, with the editor here, Karin Dumstray, which worked with us beautifully on that, is that we have, we've done the entire path. And if you look at the, at the supplementary for this paper, it's much larger than the paper in terms of the technical controls that we have done to address every potential artifact that one could imagine uh, has been addressed here. And we described it in details. And that those descriptions were actually helping our lab. Uh, every new person that comes to the lab, I tell them, hey, go, go and read this uh, supplementary of how we address every technical possibility for an artifact. And this is what I expect you to do in the papers that you will be publishing. Karen Dumstride did her PhD on fly brain development at UCLA and did a postdoc at the Max Planck Institute Göttingen on germ cell migration in zebrafish. Karen has been an editor at the Embo Journal since 2005. She handles manuscripts in immunology, host pathogen interactions, and neuroscience. We wanted to know how she, as the handling editor for Orion's manuscript, weighed the reviewer's requests for more mechanism against the importance of the paper's striking descriptions of mitochondrial behavior. In the end of the day, the paper is still very uh, descriptive. And I think that is also the beauty of the study. Yeah, the, If you look at the analysis of the, the mitochondria and their, their dynamics, it is a really beautiful example of how valuable it is to have really very well done descriptive work to see the fate of it. Yeah, And in the end, we published without much mechanistic insight and the referees were fine with that. Yeah. So it's always very challenging to sort of finite answer how much mechanism one needs for a particular paper. It really depends on the fields, the advancement of the fields. Um, and I think this paper is a really, a really good example of, first of all, uh, how a descriptive study can be incredibly insightful. But also at this stage, um, I don't think much further mechanistic insights would have been necessary for the paper to be published. Yeah, It was a complete study on its own because it was really looking at how mitochondrial dynamics affects the recognition of affects what mitochondria gets taken up by the autophagy machinery. Yeah, And it was not so much of a paper looking at how autophagy machinery recognizes damaged mitochondria. It was really focused on the mitochondria dynamics doing its life cycle. And I think for this, we wouldn't really need much more mechanistic insight. Yeah, um, Today, we probably would require more mechanistic insight, but you know, we also um, tw uh, 14 years past its, its publication. Yeah, So I think at the time, it was a very complete study. In hindsight, I should have done a news abuse on it Yeah, because it was such a timely topic. I have to admit, I am not so sure that the referees and I sort of recognized how valuable 
the findings actually was going to be for the field. Yeah. So I think we all recognize that this was an important paper, but that it actually would have uh, such an impact on, on the field. I am not so sure we were all really recognized the potential of the paper. When you read reviews in this field, this paper is still being cited as uh, for, for the core findings of the paper. So the paper has, has stood the test of time and has been shown in other cell lines and other cells as well. Yeah. In terms of fission being crucial for mitophagy, from the today's perspective, it's a bit more complicated as we now know that there are so many different types of mitophagy. So there's receptor-mediated mitophagy, ubiquitin-mediated mitophagy, programmed, stress-induced, basal mitophagy, and also something called piecemeal uh, mitophagy. And, and for the latter one, it seems that DRP1-mediated fission is not required. So I think with the tools we now have at hand and the insight into these different forms and facets of mitophagy, it is a bit different. But for many aspects of mitophagy, I think this is still a very important finding and um, aspect that can explain why mitochondrial with a lower membrane potential are eliminated by mitophagy. And that this fraction is segregated from the functional network by fission. Although in the paper, <laughs> so it seems that the decrease in the mitochondrial membrane potential can occur after the fission process. So uh, this is also something interesting, and I don't know for sure whether this is really possible to address experimentally. I mean, I rather think that both possibilities are feasible, you know, that there is a fission process induced because there is dysfunctional part in the mitochondrial network, but it can also be like suggested in this life cycle that there is a constant fusion and fission and by this constant fission process, so the less active parts of the network is segregated. That makes also a lot of sense. Just starting out with a simple question, leading to unexpected findings, and then directing your research into a totally different way of, of thinking. And I think this is the beauty of science. And this is why now, since I'm just in the field for quite a while, <laughs> you know, I, I, I try to avoid these general conclusions and uh, try to avoid being too dogmatic, you know. <laughs> but yeah, some aspects of these old uh, findings hold true. And so they just triggered a very a stimulating discussion and also line of research over the years. And in this context, I, I think that all in all, I mean, Orient's paper is really, really beautiful and insightful because they came up with a, a very plausible and innovative uh, idea and I also like the fact that they did a lot of controls to avoid artifacts because what they did, of course, is artifact prone. But they tried what they could at that time to make sure that their conclusions are not based on artifacts. 
and uh, this is something I guess that also should be mentioned. So it's really remarkable in terms of methodology and experimental approaches, and of course also in terms of the significance of, of the findings. According to Google Scholar, Gilad Twigerol's EMBO journal paper has garnered almost 3,000 citations since it came out in the January 2008 issue. The study of the mitochondrial life cycle is still an exciting research field with wide-ranging implications for both physiology and therapy. But we had to ask, did Orion and his team ever end up addressing their original research question? Was mitochondrial heterogeneity important for the pancreatic beta cell response to glucose? Yes, this was published by uh, Jakob Wickstrom in the lab that also participated in this uh, paper, together also with uh, Alvaro Lorza, that was uh, part of the, the, this uh, team and the study. And uh, what we found is that mitochondria are indeed heterogeneous. And there are some mitochondria with higher memory potential and those that were lower, and they are different population of mitochondria. And during the response to, to glucose, there is recruitment of the depolarized mitochondria in the depolarized population. So there are different layers of polarization of mitochondria within the cell, and when glucose comes, it brings them all to the very high. And uh, that was the, the result of that, and that was published uh, in Diabetes. And this question of mitochondrial heterogeneity in the cell never left us. And we have, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, published that uh, in adipocytes, we see different, also different population of mitochondria, and we use the same approach, label mitochondria and follow them with time. And we found that the mitochondria that are adherent to the lipid droplet are completely different from mitochondria that are in the cytosol. They have different biochemistry, they have different behavior, and in fact, they are only fusing with those mitochondria around the lipid droplet. So those are exclusive clubs that, that are of mitochondria within the cell that have different function. You can read Fission and Selective Fusion Govern Mitochondrial Segregation and Elimination by Autophagy, Orion's groundbreaking 2008 paper at the EMBO Journal online. On the EMBO Journal page, you will also find a collection of articles celebrating the journal's 40th anniversary. To hear other episodes of the EMBO podcast, including a conversation with Nobel Prize-winning immunologist Hasuku Honjo about another classic EMBO Journal paper, visit the EMBO podcast page or look for the EMBO podcast on your favorite podcast app. We'd like to thank Orion Shirihai, Constanze Wickelhofer, and Karen Dumstreit for participating in this episode. Thank you for listening to the EMBO Podcast. Thank you.